The Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Deanna O'Reilly. You're on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Today I'm here with Rebecca Faust. Right, welcome, Rebecca. Hello, great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. I'm just going to read a little bit from the bio here. Uh, Rebecca's bio. Rebecca was born and raised in Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania. She earned a JD from Stanford Law School and was a practicing attorney for many years before returning at age 50 to poetry. She went on to earn her MFA from Warren Wilson College. She is the author of four books of poetry, Paradise Drive in 2015, which won a Poetry Society of Virginia Book Award, a National Indie Excellence Award for Poetry, a San Francisco Book Festival Award for Poetry, and a Royal Dragonfly Award for Poetry. Wow. Uh, Another book is that All That Gorgeous Pitiless Song in 2010, winner of a Many Mountains Moving Press Book Prize. And also, she wrote God Seed Poetry and Art About the Natural World in 2010. Two books coming out that came out in 2010. Wow. And that was in collaboration with artist Lorna Stevens, and that won a Forward Reviews Book of the Year Award for Poetry. Faust chat books include Mom's Canoe in 2009, Dork Horde 2008. Okay, have I left anything out here, Rebecca? Well, it's really three full-length books and now three chat books, because I have a chat book coming out this month uh, that won the Swan Scythe chat book contest in 2018. And that one is called The Unexploded Ordnance Bin. That's what we're going to be reading from today. Um, some of these poems are from there, and some are from my previous books. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to add to that? Um, well, I, I guess my work, um, I was the Marin County Poet Laureate from 27 to 2019. That just finished up. And I'm the poetry editor for Women's Voices for Change, an online magazine that uh, column that features poetry by women over a certain age, shall we say. Um, (laughs) And the mission there is really to bring poems back into the spotlight that, you know, really great work that, that maybe didn't get enough play. Maybe it was published in a book and nowhere else, or maybe in a small print journal and nowhere else. And... You know, that added to the way women were marginalized for decades means there are, there's a lot of great poetry out there that hasn't gotten enough play. So the mission there is to bring those poems back to the public, into the public eye. I read a little mini essay about a poem each week on uh, women's voices for change. And then I also work as uh, an assistant editor for narrative magazine, reading fiction in that case, because I also write fiction and nonfiction. And what else? Um, oh, and I teach. I, I teach in a local library. I teach individual classes at various various colleges and universities around the country. And I'll be teaching at the Frost Place Seminar next next summer. You are busy. I'm busy. You're very busy. I'm really busy. Well, uh, in your bio, you say that you returned at age 50 to poetry. So you must have started as a poetry lover. I did. I mean, I loved poetry as soon as I was introduced to it, which is as a very, very small child. My mother, um, I'm first generation college, so my parents didn't have extensive educations, but my mother loved to read. And she had a little book, actually a pretty good sized book called Magic Casements, which was one of those wonderful poetry anthologies that had 
all the old chestnuts that we all love. And she read those to me. She recited some of those poems from heart. And that's, I think, where it all began. I started writing poetry in the fifth grade and wrote it all through high school and all through college. But uh, and, and poetry was my minor. I was an English major in college. But somehow in all that time, it never really occurred to me to be really much more than an appreciator of poetry and, and someone who scribbled it now and then. Well, fast forward to my 50th year, which was the year my mother died. And one way I, I dealt with that was by writing a lot of poems and then shoving them in a drawer. And then uh, a few years later, or actually, actually that happened when I was more like 48. Then when I was 50, I used to keep these bucket lists every decade saying what I'd hope to achieve in the next decade of my life. And I went back over all the old ones and the common denominator on every one was publish my book, which, you know, the only thing I'd really written much of was poetry. So that meant poetry. So I started thinking about what that might mean. And I signed up for my, my first writing class in about 40 years, which was at a local bookstore. And the teacher there had us writing essays, short essays in response to prompts. And I brought a number of these in, you know, it was fun, but it didn't really spark that much. And then one day I brought in a poem and everything changed. Everyone sat up, people listened. I felt, uh, I felt switched on in a way I hadn't felt when I was reading essays. And my teacher told me afterwards, this is what you should be doing. You should write poetry. Just bring poems in from now on. Well, at the end of that class, she brought in a little entry form for everyone for the, I think it was called the Writer's Digest. I think it was their 35th year offering those awards. And I, I put a couple poems in there and a couple of them won. <laughs> and it was, it was a revelation. It, it felt like a message from the universe telling me I was on the right track and that I should start taking myself more seriously as a writer. The other thing that happened around that time is I began reading contemporary poetry again. I had kind of stopped for the in, the in the decades when I was raising kids and practicing law. And I started noticing a lot of books by women like me, women my age, women, you know, without uh, huge connections to academia and poetry. And that also made me think, well, if they're doing it, maybe I can too. So at that time, uh, I have a son on the spectrum who was in high school and was having a rough time. And I was writing a lot of poems in order to process that. So I bundled up a bunch of those and sent them to the Texas Review Contest. I think it was the first or second place I sent that manuscript, and they took it. Oh, my God. So that's how it all started. And I, I really don't know if I hadn't had those early yeses, knowing what I know now and, and how, you know, discouraging it can get and labor intensive and all consuming. I don't know if I would have gone forward. And it, it makes me really aware as a teacher of how important it is to give early encouragement to students, because it's really easy in those early stages to not believe in yourself and to just give up. Yeah, my one of my poetry teachers says that every poem is sacred. Yeah, I think it is. And and that ties into something else, I believe, which is no poem is wasted and no poem is just an exercise. I had one teacher yet once. Uh, I did go to grad school after after all that happened. And I started going to really serious poetry workshops I discovered that I was missing the language and the references and, and it, it hampered my ability to understand what I was being taught. So pe somebody would say something like, this reminds me of a poem by Sharon Olds. And back in those days, I literally would say, who is Sharon Olds? <laughs> so I felt like there was this huge gap. So I went back to grad school to, to get on a discipline program of reading and study. But, um, but one of my teachers responding to one of my poems once said something like, this is for the exercise book. And I remember thinking about Sylvia Plath and how I think Ted Hughes said about her that, that no poem was too small for her full attention. And that if she couldn't make a Heppelwhite dresser out of something, she'd make a beautiful footstool. 
And, and that kind of applies to my work too. I, I really don't, I try to take each poem seriously. And especially with my students, I try to take each poem very seriously because it may not yet be fully realized, but a poem comes from a place that matters in a person. Yeah, it's hard to know what to say to people about their poems because, I mean, in my case, like I've written things and just couldn't figure out where to take it. And I go back years later and I'm able to bring it forward a little bit more. But I often wonder, what could anyone have told me about this poem that would have helped me make the next step? I just needed time. Or maybe there would have been some magic words that have helped me shape the poem a little bit more. I think in that case, and I often tell students this, sometimes you just have to put a poem away and come back to it. And I might, I might say something like the poem is not yet fully realized or it doesn't quite know what it wants to say yet, but it definitely wants to say something. So hang on to it. Mm-hmm. And part of what I teach people besides craft is the importance of developing a practice that, that saves things. You know, like I, I, when I first started, I I did save all my little scraps of paper and all my things scrawled on cocktail napkins over the years. I had a huge box of these things. And once I got really serious, I went back to all of that and went through it. And that's why for about the first 10 years, I had so many poems because I was bringing forward poems that had been written or started 10, 20, 30 years before. That's, yeah. that's slowed down a bit now, but even, even a scrap, you have to figure out a way to, to save that stuff and store it where you can find it later. Yeah, it's really important. Uh, I think it was Brenda Shaughnessy did a workshop in this area, and I didn't go, so it was secondhand information, but that's what she does. She just takes little pieces of poems and kind of puts them out on the floor like a mind map. Um, to get her, to put her poems together. And I think that that Jericho Brown, his new duplexes that he is writing, mm-hmm. is a similar kind of thing. He takes these little notes that he's written and he just lays them out. And it's like a collage in a way. The mind kind of provides the gravity that pulls all the pieces together into a poem. But it's important to respect every little piece that you produce or else you'll never do that. I agree. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, so you went to Warren Wilson College. Um, did you have like who, who did, did you have like Tony Hoagland? I know was there for a while. Did you? he was there while I was there, but only one of the semesters. Um, he gave a really wonderful lecture. Did you ever read his essay um, about about a, a kind of experimental poetry that pushes the edges. It was something about the skittery poem of the moment or something. But anyway, the topic of his lecture was what some people call difficult poetry and how it works, where it goes, where it comes from, why it's, it's a great thing to be aware of and incorporate elements from into your own practice, even if it's not your particular style so he was, he was just great, but I never worked with him directly. Mm-hmm. I love his poems, and I love that essay he wrote. Uh, I think it was in The Sun right before he died. Oh, about, my gosh. About how cancer cures, cured him of being a racist or something. Yeah, cancer cures racism. He got, a yeah. lot of flack. he got a lot of flack for that, but uh, it was a really interesting dialogue. I thought it was very moving and, yeah. and raw and honest. But... Um, so he was there, and and then I worked directly with four different teachers. Um, one was Deborah Alberry. One was Brooks Haxton for my essay semester. One was Heather McHugh. And then for my final semester, when I was pulling together my thesis, I had the great good fortune to have my advisor be David Baker, <laughs> the editor of the Kenyon Review. And he, he really helped shape that book. I wish he would do that with all my books. <laughs> oh my gosh, lucky. Yeah, well, the great so thing, lucky. Like you said, the great thing about an MFA is you really put in your hours of reading. And I think it's, the reading is, is so key to just internalize the voices of the people who came before 
Yeah, it was really necessary for me. And it was also necessary for me to to do that program as a way of avowing my dedication to the practice. You know, I, I was having a really hard time making room for the poetry, the kind of room it demands. But once I was in grad school, I could just tell everybody, sorry, I can't do that. <laughs> I just can't. I've got work. I've got homework. And I treat yeah. it like a full-time job. And that helped develop the practice I adhere to today where it is a job. And I save my best hours for it and schedule it and make the rest of my life fit in. As yeah, I think, I think that's key is knowing what your best hours are. Yeah. Figuring out when you can produce your work, your best work. Yeah, not getting sucked into answering emails and whatnot during that time. I know. That's like the Gmail is the gateway into time wasting. (laughs) (laughs) The gateway drug. Why don't we go ahead and read one of your poems uh, in case you just tuned in. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Dion O'Reilly. And we're talking with Rebecca Faust. And I was wondering if you had the unexploded ordinance bin in front of you. I do. That's the title poem for my chapbook coming out with Swan Scythe Press this month. Um, Just for a little bit of background, my husband's family um, spends time every summer in a place called Wellfleet on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. And I've had the great luck to be able to go back there most summers since 1975 for a week or two. And Wellfleet is pretty far out there on the Cape. It's called the Outer Cape. But for years, there used to be, there's this gorgeous view of the harbor. And for years, there used to be like two halves of a giant ship out there. Like a, it looked like a freighter or a battleship. And the two ends were kind of canted up and the middle was collapsed. And we were always told that that was a target ship that I think the Navy had used for bombing practice in the 40s and 50s. And it turns out there was a lot of that kind of activity in that area back in those days. And the result is there's ordinance. There's ordinance on the bottom of the ocean. It washes up on the beaches and some, you know, bombs and artillery shells and that kind of thing. And um, some of what washes up is live. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. So uh, we have found some of this and and this poem tells the story about that. And also, uh, well, you'll see. Okay. Now I'm going to read Rebecca Faust's The Unexploded Ordnance Bin. The Unexploded Ordnance Bin. Our son found the hollow shell, snub-nosed, and finned, and looking like an Acme cartoon bomb where we raked for clams. He wanted to keep it, and we wanted to let him. Even the old oystermen wanted to let him. But we'd read about the shell found and kept for three weeks by an Oregon boy before the powder dried and it went off. We took a few minutes to snap photos of our son, an ordinary boy then, putting the shell under his sister's pillow and pretending to launch it at the foods that made him gag. At the police station, the desk sergeant crooked a thumb toward the dune with its big metal bin and warning sign. Once a month, he said, we set them off and it really lights the place up. It's too small to be seen, the gene causing autism, but I imagine it anyway with snub nose and fins and powder waiting to dry. First words blown off and away like the fingers of that Oregon boy whose mom's grief I used to feel safe from, who let her son keep his bomb in ignorance or faith, strong as my own caution, that led, in the end, to the same spectacular dismemberment of the future. And I wonder what it would look like, the bin for safe disposal of genes that can ruin children. And I think maybe it's my own body, 
or rather the body without children, or rather the body that's lucky, or belonging to someone still living in ignorance and improbable faith, or maybe the bin is the world, when to be human was all promise and radiance, unwinding dawn mudflats into long shining ribbons pink as a newborn baby's gums. And elsewhere, a family in a warm illuminated room is eating steamed clams or just any ordinary dinner as if it weren't going to blow all to hell any second, all those bright dreams lit up like tracer fire over the dark dunes like the Perseids, only not at all like the Perseids. That was Rebecca Faust's The Unexploded Ordnance Bin. I'm Deanna Riley, and this is The Hive Poetry Collective. So that one is from your new chapbook. Isn't that correct? Yes, it's the title poem. Um, um, well, there's so much I love about this poem. Just starting with it with our son found the hollow shell. Hollow shell, and then there's a line break. Hollow shell, it could be something really beautiful or it could be something really ominous. Right. I intended that because, you know, when you're on a beach, you find you find shells. And, of course, we all picked up a lot of beautiful hollow shells. Mm-hmm. A hollow shell could also be like a person who is a hollow shell, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the Acme cartoon bomb. I mean, it's so great. I mean, you can everyone knows what that is, or at least I think everyone does. And that's exactly what it looked like. Exactly. Oh, he was so thrilled. (laughs) Um, Then you go on and you say that he was an ordinary boy. And that is explosive right there because it's like ordinance or ordinary is like ordinance. Yeah. I mean, it's really like unexploded ordinance because you know, something is not right, but you don't know yet what it is. So it's just simmering there, waiting for later revelation, which I think doesn't really fully come in until you see the word autism later in the poem. Right, but it's, it's operating subconsciously. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're already on alert because we know that some Oregon boy had his fingers blown off. Right. Um, and there's a sense of menace, I think, because it's like, what is this parent even thinking that they would even let their kid hang on to this thing, you know? Yeah. But, you know, it... It was wet, and we didn't really know what it was. And until I Googled it, I didn't really even know those things could go off. But, um, yeah, we didn't keep it for very long, an Mm. hour or two. Yeah. And then um, it's too small to be seen, line break, the gene causing autism. I mean, the line break makes it harder to see, like you don't see it coming. By breaking the line, it's too small to be seen. And that's a real turn. All of a sudden, we've got this Volta, and you could in there, and there's the central analogy: the autism is like unexploded ordnance that you just happen upon. Right. So always, you know, a brilliant central analogy uh, is helpful to make Thank a brilliant you. poem. <laughs> Thank you. And then, then, you know, you have some complicit, complicity. The speaker kind of reveals a certain sort of like an arrogance whose mom's grief I used to feel safe from. Right. You know, we all, <laughs> it's such a parent thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You think it's always so tempting when things happen to others to, to find ways to distinguish your situation from them so that you can... Uh, not blame yourself or remove yourself from the risk. I think every parent does a lot of that. Yeah, well, if you know what's possible, you're less likely to breed. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that the truth? (laughs) So that's great complicity. Um, Thank you. Totally can relate to that. I mean, I used to look at people with problems and just go, well, they probably didn't eat right when they were pregnant or some crazy thing like that. Um, but then there's like another turn, and, um, and I wonder what it would look like, the bin for safe disposal of genes. 
Like that's a real imaginative turn there. Well, the poem by then has established the connection between explosive genetic material and unexploded ordnance, but it's called the unexploded ordnance bin. And it was that bin, and that's a literal bin. I don't know if it's still there, but it used to be on the dune right behind the police station. And when you found anything, you were supposed to just dump it in there. And then every once in a while, they would blow it all up to get rid of it. So what really fascinated me was that bin, the idea that there's a safe place to put that stuff so that when it goes off, no one will get hurt. So I was really pushing that analogy further in those lines. Mm. But then the bin becomes my own body Mm -hmm. or the body that never had children or the body that's lucky. So you you keep kind of saying it could be this, no, it's that, no, it's this, which is what the mind does. But each turn is an imaginative, a reimagining of the personal safe bin for these genes. Right. And I mean, I think the inevitable conclusion is there is no safe bin for that. Because mm-hmm. the speaker keeps trying on different possibilities and rejecting them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it goes back to the original dream. Um, Promise and radiance, unwinding dawn mudflats into long, shining ribbons, pink as a newborn baby's gums. Right there, there's that initial joy and hope of the child. And I think the newborn baby's gums, it's so, that's so unexpected. Everyone talks about fingers and toes. I remember when my babies were nursing, being amazed at their gums. Their gums were so beautiful and shiny, and they really did look like ribbons. And the, the color and the radiance and the shine and the kind of spatial orientation, I don't know, it just reminded me of the way, I don't know if you've ever been in a place that has a super low tide, but at ebb tide, if the sun rises and it's an ebb tide, the flats turn pink. Yeah, I know that. Long yeah. stripes. So that, that's how that occurred to me. Let's just take a moment here, pause for a second, um, so I can tell our listeners that this is the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Deanna Riley talking to Rebecca Faust about her poem, Unexploded Ordnance Band. And this is KSQD, Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM. Um, yeah, so I know exactly what you're talking about, how there's this kind of slick pink long stretches on the beach when you have a minus tide. And yeah, the, uh, yeah, minus tide. I love that term. Yeah, almost looks organic or alive, which I guess it is. It's full of life for sure. Yeah. Like the Perseids, only not at all like the Perseids. Like we have a dream of beauty and it's its own separate beauty not quite like what you think it's going to be yeah and I think most people know but if not I'll just say that the Perseids are an annual meteor shower that you can see from everywhere but especially from the east coast and typically I'm at that place in Wellfleet in August which is when the Perseids are happening and so those showers are, are kind of a big part of my experience there. And sometimes they are just amazing. Sometimes they're almost frightening because there's so many shooting stars happening Ooh. all at once. I've never seen that. Well, I haven't met, spent much time on the East Coast. Beautiful. Yeah, I grew up there. Still have a lot of family back there. Do you like going back? I, I love the East Coast. I love the seasons. I love spending time with my family. It's it's a hard trip, particularly going back to Altoona or Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania, because there's just no easy way to get there. And there are very few direct flights. So going back there always feels like a pilgrimage. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, uh, from your palms, I assume that it's mining country. Is it coal mining country? Yeah, bituminous coal, a lot of strip mines, some deep shaft mines. Uh, Altoona in its heyday, which was in the 30s and 40s, 
for a while it rivaled New York. Um, it was the birthplace of the railroad industry, and it's where all the eastern seaboard trains were sent for repair for 100 years, were all sent there to Altoona. We also had a lot of factories, a lot of smokestacks, textile mills, uh, chemical factories. That The area was terribly polluted for a long time. But then the industry started to pack up and leave. It became kind of a rust belt area. It was really hard on everyone with the unemployment. But I read recently that the, um, the waterways back there, and especially the air, have really gotten cleaned up. But when I was a kid, it was pretty normal for our parents' generation to die from lung cancer. And that wasn't just smoking cigarettes. That was from the air. The air was oh. very bad there. Oh, I assumed it was from like black lung or something when I was reading the poetry. Well, my mom, uh, I don't think I even had any family members who actually worked in the mines, but there was so much particulate soot in the air from all those factories and from the railroad repair uh, shops that my mom said when she went, would go to high school, walk to high school, they would always wear like a man's handkerchief, like a bandana around their face. And that when they got to school, it would be black. The bandana would be black that they oh were breathing God. through. So the air was pretty bad. But I read somewhere that it's actually better there now than it is in Denver, for example. Yeah, well, that's, that's kind of bittersweet that people had jobs and they had industry and now they don't. And, and yet it's clean. It's a real trade-off. Yeah, I have a poem about that. Um, if you want me to read it, I don't think it was on the poems I sent you, but it's a sonnet from my uh, Paradise Drive book about about the land healing itself. Want me to well, read if it? You, yeah, if you have that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've got it right here. Okay. Uh, this is called Vernal, and I was thinking about Vernal Springs that just, you know, about those. In the spring when there's snow melt or a lot of water runoff, uh, sometimes vernal pools will simply appear for a couple of days and then disappear. And they're actually pretty important to the life cycle of some critical insects. But anyway, I love the idea of these pools that just appear and then go away. For me, it's a wonderful symbol of renewal. So this is called Vernal. Some things we believe cannot be redeemed, but in a valley, the railroad finally forgot the silted, slugged ditch we would not eat fish from, once again runs a river, rilled as before by clear water, not black. Grass grows back between tracks and rails. Limestone spalls, hewn from the mountain, heal into soil. Stumps heaped with live coals, split and winched out. In spring, frail, a new circlet of green. Panthers are seen. A sun is born blue and lives. Some things we believe cannot be redeemed, but the dawn, as yet, is diurnal. The woods keep a hushed vigil, then rustle with life we can't see. Small ponds well from the ground while we sleep. That's almost a list poem. It's a list of renewable items. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a list of the things that are coming back. I love the sun born blue. What is it? Then breathes? Then lives. Then lives. You do have a lot of um, great sounds in that. Thank you. Repetitions. There was F, F, F and a few, like one of the first lines and then S, 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 which replicates the relentlessness of the earth's renewal. Yes. I don't know if I intended that, but I'm glad it happened. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's no less magic when it happens by accident. Yeah, it's actually more magic when it happens by accident. I love the line, panthers are seen. Yeah, you know, mountain lions... The Nittany Lions are the school mascot for Penn State, and they were also 
tigers were the mascot for my high school. And, and they used to see a lot of mountain lions in that area. And then for a long time, never saw one. Like I've, I never saw one back there, but I've heard that they're coming back. And I just, I think that was another really effective symbol for renewal when something that you think is perhaps extinct or endangered begins to come back. Uh, so f- to the audience, if you just tuned in, this is the Hive Poetry Collective. This is the show where we talk about poetry. You can find us on all your favorite podcast platforms, Spotify and iTunes, and we have a Facebook present presence, the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD, and we have a blog, hivepoetry.org. Please feel free to interact with our online presence. If you know people that would be good to interview or you have a topic you want to hear about, please feel free to let us know. And we're talking with Rebecca Faust, poet extraordinaire. She just read her poem, Vernal. So Rebecca, you were an attorney for a long time. Is that correct? Well, I, I think it says a long time in that bio. It wasn't really that long. Uh, it, I practiced. Like it was. <laughs> yeah, I practiced actively for about twelve years, but after my third child was born, it began to get really overwhelming and difficult. And then we moved to New York, and New York does not have reciprocity with California, oh. so I was not permitted to practice law there. And that was around the time that we started developing a real appreciation for the issues our son who's on the spectrum was facing and going to face. So what I started doing then was uh, working as an advocate for parents of kids with learning challenges. And I did that for another 20 years or so. And, and then when I really got serious about the poetry, I retired from pretty much all of that. But it sounds like you're, uh, awareness of autism really feeds into your poem. Of course, our life experiences always do feed into our poems. Yeah, my son is my muse. Uh, that first book, Dark Heart, they were all poems about about him and about the challenges of parenting a child on the spectrum. Well, it just seems like the difficulties in our life are often our muses. When, you sit, when I sit down to write, it's, it's the question I ask myself is, what's bothering me? What's on my mind? What's haunting me? Yeah, you know, Larry Levis used to organize his books simply by presenting the poems in the order they were actually written. And I always thought that was a really, for one thing, would solve a big problem I have, which is sequencing manuscripts. But... Um, But I kind of love that idea because it shows the arc of your obsessions during a given time period. Hmm. And yeah, I I agree. I mean, what's troubling you tends to be wonderful fodder for poetry. Well, you know, what really intrigues me about poetry is how the poetry works out the issue, how it finds the solace. Yeah, you know, Joan Didion said once, how do I know what I think until I write it down? And my my mind works like that, too. And I, I can't really fully articulate how I think or feel about something unless I actually write it down. And sometimes that takes the form of a poem, poem and sometimes not. But the process of articulating and separating the strands can be can be therapeutic and and can also, I think, more impo- beyond therapy and more important than therapy, can lead into new insights. Well, it sounds like because of your writing, keeping a journal, you were able to look at your bucket list and figure out you wanted to write. Yeah, good point. You had written it down so many times. But I think that what is really helpful about writing poetry to deal with really painful issues um, the kind of issues you might go into therapy for that you really need help with is that it provides language that is non-linear and non, non kind of non-polar, I guess I'd say. It's not black and white. It's not binary. And so you can kind of go into very subtle, abstract areas that are really difficult to articulate. 
Yeah, I agree with that. It picks up where the rational mind leaves off. And it also allows you to access parts of your subconscious that are otherwise hidden to you. Yeah, metaphor is the key. Metaphor. We love metaphor. metaphor. (laughs) Here at the Hive Poetry Collective, we love metaphor. (laughs) Um, Okay. Speaking of painful issues and brilliant metaphors to express the feelings thereof, why don't I go ahead and read Rebecca Faust's next poem, Election Returns. 2016. The way up the mountain was same as always, switchbacks and more switchbacks. The trail rising through redwoods arced over a silence rinsed with new rain. We were in an emerald world of mist and new shoots, moss plumped up like hope and trembling with tiny glass beads. It was dusk and late fall. The wind edged by the reminder that some things sweeten in rot while others do not. We knew what would happen and in what order. We'd been made to suffer for a few hours, then it would be all okay. We'd emerge above the fog, all below blind and cold, our air clear and tanged with wet creosote, match tips, and wine. We pressed on, remembering other years that tested our faith before reaching the summit. Yes, there were portents, maple leaves pasting the trail with bloody handprints, evergreens brittle and brown, a few manzanita oddly in bloom, like water, like pewter, faint reek of smoke. We hoped came from a controlled burn. We went on, recalling other falls, followed by springs, walking the trail by memory, memory that also held rain after drought and wild iris massed like stars. We walked until we came upon what was left of the deer, a white basket of rib cage that looked almost human, matted fur, tags of red flesh. On the way down, it would all become clear, but even then we understood it was a fresh kill and the cougar was close. That was the day we were exposed to ourselves. The day we looked around to see who among us was weakest and knew they were prey, were prey and would be culled from the herd. That was Rebecca's Faust's Election Returns 2016. So if we didn't have that title, Election Returns, The poem could be about something much more universal. It's about danger, predation, who will be victimized and who won't. So it's about oppression and the vulnerability of certain populations. Exactly. The tension really builds. There's a lot of foreboding. just even the trembling with tiny glass beads, moss plumped up like hope and trembling with tiny glass beads. Yeah, and anyone who knows anything about California knows that that plumped up moss and those beads are not going to last very long because we have, you know, continual problems with drought. Yeah. So that's kind of an image of beauty and fragility. And this this idea of of who's going to make it and who isn't is... You, you express in the final line of the first stanza, and it's, it's a rhyme, edged by the reminder that some things sweeten and rot while others do not. Right. I, I love building drama in poems. I, one of my teachers, um, uh, Ellen Bryant-Watt, in a workshop once, I remember her saying to a student, you know, what is the dramatic situation here? What is the scene? What is the arc of the action? And not every poem's attempt to do that, but this is a narrative poem, and a narrative poem tells a story. So I like, I like to build an arc that uh, in, in, includes some kind of building tension, and then 
you know, building to, to a peak and then letting go at some point. Yeah. Narrative poems are so human, so human and accessible. We love to hear that rising tension. Yeah. And people love story. I mean, it's one of the reasons I've started writing stories because a lot more people want to read stories than want to read poems. It's a great way to get your message out. Well, the odd thing is, um, I think there's a little bit of a myth that the narrative poem is the harder poem to write and that narrative poet, poets are somehow facile. But I personally find a narrative poem much harder to write. I can come up with like strings of interesting metaphors and images. I mean, I have lists of them. Uh, I, I collect them like some people collect Dresden China or something. <laughs> Me too. And I could just string them together. Um, but to have a real a story that just builds like that and takes turns, um, yeah, I find it I find it challenging. Uh, this one is a very good example. And it's, we knew what would happen and in what order. That's like a tragedy. Yeah. In tragedies like Romeo and Juliet and um, who's the guy that killed his dad, married his mom. Uh, Oedipus. Yeah, Oedipus, thank you. You know that guy. At the crossroads <laughs> at Thebes. <laughs> right, um, right. Um, at the beginning of that, we know what's going to happen, but it doesn't make it any less tragic. I mean, you know, there's a lot of deep metaphor in this poem, maybe too deep, uh, but I really, I became convinced after workshopping it for about a year that that it was better with all that connective material. But for example, we knew what would happen in what order. That refers, I mean, the poem is called Election Returns, not Election. So the poem follows the course of someone watching these returns and believing until the very end that it's all going to be okay. And then it suddenly isn't okay. And it links that activity to taking this hike up a mountain. Um, But we knew what would happen in what order also refers to the hike itself. We'd done it before. We knew what we'd see. We, we knew what order we'd see things in. And then thirdly, it refers to the knowledge gained at the end of the poem that when, when someone like our current president is elected, what's going to happen is pretty predictable and terrifying. God. Oh, my God. Devastating. Now, what I was most worried about is the thing that first came to pass, which is the immigrant, the situation with our immigrants. That was his first salvo of attack. And I just knew it. I just knew it. The minute those returns came in, I knew that, that there was going to be a terrible purge. Well, that was the first thing he said that yeah. was, was Mexicans are rapists. They send us, yep. we don't send us their best people. They send us a rapist. And I imagine that some of them are good people. So that was like, that was the first salvo. Yep. So I, it, that's kind of what this poem, this poem tries to capture that experience of watching those returns, believing everything is going to be okay and following this, the familiar path. And, you know, when it talks about other other walks and other hikes where the iris are massed like stars, that's nobody would get that that's the reference to Obama, but it is. Well, you have a reference to hope at the beginning, moss plumped up like hope. That, yeah. That's kind of an Obama reference. Yeah. Um, well, for people who are just tuning in, this is the Hive Poetry Collective, and I'm talking with Rebecca Faust. I'm Dion O'Reilly. And this poem we just read is a kind of devastating allegory of watching the election results and comparing it to a hike. Um, a lot of the imagery in the poem gets you ready for the bloodshed. <laughs> At the end, you've got the bloody handprints, the faint reek of smoke. We hoped came from a controlled burn, but no. Um, it's a little bit uh, more apocalyptic than that. And then we went on recording other falls, like things have happened before, followed by springs, walking the trail by memory, memory that also held rain after drought and wild iris mass like stars. Like there's still some hope at that point. Yeah, and this, this uh, 
event with the deer actually happened. You know, I was taking a hike with my nephews, I think, showing them the beauties of Mount Tam here in Marin County. And we were just walking along, oblivious. It was idyllic. Everything was beautiful. And we turned a corner and there was a fresh kill laying in the trail. And so there was immediately this feeling of, is the mountain lion still here? Which could be a very dangerous situation. You know, just like this rapid switch from an idol to a nightmare, which is how a lot of us felt, I think, on the day of the yeah, election. Especially if you're born in the 50s, you're inclined to think that, I mean, that really was kind of an, well, it was an idol, but there was a lot going on, on the surface. Powerful poem. We're almost, getting to, we're almost getting to the end of our time, believe me. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, was, it's been an amazing conversation. Why don't you tell the audience really quickly what your current projects are um, and how they can find you? On oh, great. Yeah, web. sure. Um, so they can just Google my name, Rebecca Faust, and I have a website which... I should keep better up to date than I do, but at least that's a starting point. I also have a Facebook presence. Uh, I I write a column every week for Women's Voices for Change, and I post those all over Facebook and Twitter. Um, And I usually now track my appearances on Facebook. Just every once in a while, I list them. I have a lot of appearances coming up this October because my chapbook's coming out in a couple of weeks. Um, but what am I working on? Well, I, I spent all summer on the galleys for the chapbook and just put that to bed. And I have a new manuscript of poems that I'm working on and starting to send out. And just writing, continuing to write new poems. I, I had a bit of a dry spell while I was Poet Laureate. I think I was too busy. And I, I kind of learned the lesson then that to write new material, you have to have a certain amount of just space in your life. <laughs> So I've been working on trying to recapture some of that space and and, ha- and have done that. And indeed, the poems are starting to come again. So this morning, before we got in the air, I spent all morning revising a poem that that came to me over the summer. So that, that feels good. When I'm writing new stuff, I feel great about writing. When I'm not, I feel like a fraud. (laughs) Me too. My gosh, it's been so great having you here. Thank you for coming on the Hive Poetry Collective. We've been talking to Rebecca Faust. This is Deanna Riley. Thank you for tuning into the Hive Poetry Collective. This is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. And before we buzz out of the hive today, I'd like to tell you about a few events that are coming up. The first is on April 7th, Ellen Bass will be having her book launch. That's April 7th. Ellen Bass's new book is called Indigo. The other is on March 15th, and that is going to be a reading of poetry for the celebration of the muse on March 15th. So put both of those in your calendar, and we'll have more details on where and when. So stay tuned to The Hive. Now a little bit of the segment, What I Am Reading. This is some poetry from the chapbook, Jackpot from Jean Morel, which is due to be published very soon. So that's Jean Morel, J-E-A-N-N-E, Morel, M-O-R-E-L. And once again, the name of the chapbook is Jackpot. Nobody cares what color my coat is. I wrap myself in an alphabet for stormy weather and head across the paths, mapless, without a hat, and yet some days I can't leave the house unless I'm dressed in blue jeans, a black t-shirt. You have too many consonants and vowels in your name, the real estate woman smirked, as though this were that and not my favorite black cardigan, sweater. I wrap myself in an alphabet for stormy consonant and vowels for morphine drips for frozen ground, for blue, small flowers. Another poem from her collection, The Past. 
a general service list of English words. Number one, the scar on the palm of my right hand presumably has something to do with my parents and a glass of cognac on the floor of their bedroom when I was a toddler. Two, nursery school, a small building, a little path across the street and down toward the smokehouse on telegraph. Three, in Berkeley, one is apt to see cats on porches of other people's houses. Four, when she lived far from New York and in Los Angeles with her mother, my mother's dog, Ruggles, was poisoned one year on Yom Kippur. Five, for a few years we read The Joys of Yiddish and found it hilarious. Six, the apartment where my father lived was torn down for People's Park. Seven, by then we were living two states to the north. And now the titular poem of the chapbook, Jackpot, is called Jackpot. Deranged on the floor in the corner, I stall in gold earrings and a black t-shirt. Hello, it's noon. On the game show of empty rooms, the host calls out the pall of hollow costs, but empty hours ring. The only major state of grace, kitching, kitching, casino cherries, plums, and sevens, salmon, sagebrush, and syrah. Pick the one that doesn't belong. Forget the score. Perchance your lucky number, drop a deep blue blossom on the carpet swirl. Watch it fall, a stranger. So once again, that was just a few poems from Jean Morel's Jackpot, which is coming out from Bottle Cap Press. Jean Morel lives and teaches in Seattle, Washington. She is the editor of Bellarist Poetry Journal. So I hope you enjoyed those poems by Jean. Why don't we just do one more before we leave? This one's called At 59. At 59, because I did not know the frightening door would come ajar, I thought to call. Perhaps I sensed it shift, but no thought to wait another week. And so to chat October with a glow of gold on leaves and trees, thinking we were safe. I did not know, and so I missed you as you slipped silent on the other side. Once again, thanks for tuning in to the Hive Poetry Collective here on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Keep tuning in every Sunday at 8 o'clock. You're bound to hear poetry here, either the Hive Poetry Collective or the Poetry Show. Good night.